Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's spring, and what better way to put a spring in your step than by buying some comfy knickers or pants? That is how it works, right? I mean, when I was a kid, if you bought new trainers, and everyone said you'd be able to run faster. So I guess if you buy new pants, then you might be able to put a spring in your... Oh, no, bum. Wait, that's... Wait, okay, that's wrong. Yes, anyway, uh, while we all know the wonderful British boxers do an incredible range of things to sleep in, it's now nearly sunny outside again, you know, in that way where it's also a bit cold, but you're still going to need a new T-shirt, hoodie, or new pants to go and try it in before you then have to go back inside and get your jacket. And British boxers have a brilliant range of all of those things, as well as pyjamas that you're probably still going to need for work until at least 2023. British boxers are an independent, ethically excellent lot who make actually nice lounge and casual wear that you can wear inside or outside, but, you know, with shoes on as well because you're sensible. Head to British-Boxers.com and use the code PARPOLBRO10 and you'll get 10% off whatever you order. You might accuse me of being in the pockets of Big Pyjama and I'd say, no, actually, I'd take a medium and my pockets have an old tissue in because that's tradition. It's just always there. I don't even know where it's come from. It's really strange. It's every... Pajama pocket, it's always an old tissue. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast whose relationship to the truth is that it's real sweet on it, but the truth just doesn't want to commit as years of seeing the political class has given it fear of rejection. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and this week a big raspberry to all of those idiots who said Brexit wouldn't make Britain a more global country and yet, ha ha, thanks to the government's failure to strike a fishing deal, it's even made fish and chips Norwegian. There is nothing to see here, says Prime Minister and disappointing fatberg Boris Johnson when he was asked about the costs of refurbing the 10 Downing Street flat. Really? Well, then why did it cost so much? You could have just left a door or a few windows open at night and there are loads of talented burglars who'd have given you that sort of minimalist style for free. Has the Prime Minister broken the law? Sorry, I mean broken the law again? Well, the Electoral Commission will make a decision based on their findings as to whether Boris Johnson paid for the flat himself or he had a ton of dosh from donors who were happy to help pay for wallpaper so garish that it would at least hide all the marks from where Johnson's tried to hump the furniture or spaff up the wall. 
And everyone knows that is what's happened, by the way. I mean, the donors, not the spaffing, and also the spaffing. Donors have allegedly funded the £200,000 renovation to remove what Johnson's partner in Slime and Skrull, who hasn't yet worked out the shape-shifting bit properly, Carrie Simmons, referred to as a John Lewis nightmare. Hey, we've all had those, right? John Lewis nightmares. I once spent three hours in there trying to find pillowcases only to discover I couldn't afford them. And we've all been lost in the lingerie section for seemingly endless amounts of time, right? Right? Oh. Man of the people there, the Prime Minister, thinking John Lewis is trashy when the rest of us only go there to see what money we've saved buying things almost anywhere else. It's odd that Simmons doesn't like John Lewis when they're never knowingly undersold, and that's a naivety and lack of awareness her and Johnson always want the public to have as they misuse taxpayers' money and fling contracts at pals. Sorry, I take it back, it's Tory donor money, and it's not like they've ever paid tax, so I suppose in a way that is one consolation for all of us. Maybe Johnson and Carrie were just giving a campaign boost to the Conservative West Midlands mayor seeking re-election this week, Andy Street, who's the former boss at John Lewis and appears to be a terrifying vision of what if Stephen Colbert picked the wrong holy grail. I'm very sure he'd appreciate the boost. And if it wasn't a boost, it was an insult. I'm sure he's not remotely aware that he's been undersold. It's apparently common chat around Westminster that Boris Johnson can't actually afford to be Prime Minister. So hey, he is a man of the people. I can't afford to be Prime Minister too. Ah, no way, he can't afford to be Prime Minister on £150,000 a year, which actually I could afford to do it for that if anyone would like to give me the chance. Anyone fancy it? I promise not to spend it all on gold wallpaper like Johnson has done. Though actually, I can't really complain about the gold wallpaper when it at least means the Prime Minister's finally been able to show some signs of guilt. Apparently, Boris Johnson has told his friends he needs more than £300,000 a year to keep his head above water, maybe because the weight of his ego and face of infinitely melting lard would mean he'd sink without an expensively made dinghy. The average UK salary is £31,461 a year, so if man of the people Boris Johnson is so shit with cash that he needs ten times that to survive, maybe they need to swap his benefits and salary with a card that can only be used at supermarkets and not for any cigarettes or booze or fucking gold wallpaper. The Prime Minister should have really thought about whether or not he could afford to have 400 kids before he had them as well. Apparently Johnson's asked donors to pay for his latest son's nanny, which I assume is childcare costs, but may also be one of those settlements so that she doesn't tell stories about the times he's asked her to wipe his bum instead. Of course, Boris Johnson also took that holiday that was paid for by a Conservative donor in December 2019 that I think lasted for about 14 months and in fact I'm not sure he's ever really finished. Sources say Johnson is terrible with money and often forgets to pay his bill at the end of a meal, so I guess it's no wonder that his method of leading the country has just been a series of dining out at our expense before leaving everyone else to pay for it. It's why government spending is as frivolous as a kid in a toy shop and rarely on anything that the country actually needs or wants. £200 million is now going to go on a national flagship to commemorate rich twiglet Prince Philip, who is still definitely dead. Great, a big ship for someone who's dead. I'm sure he'll make tons of use of that when there's already a ferryman at the River Styx. Then again, I suppose Philip did seem to drive his car while dead, so I could be wrong. If you really want to honour Prince Philip's death, none of that money should be spent on the boat's steering controls at all. I am, of course, being facetious. I mean, what better way to honour Phil's existence than by spending vast amounts of money on something that will never, ever benefit the public? So, there's £200 million for that, but if you live in a building with flammable cladding, the government has decided that you have to foot the bill to remove it, which will cost thousands and thousands of pounds or one number 10 flat redecoration. The fire safety bill passed in Parliament last week, with the results appearing like its purpose was less to keep people safe from fire, but more allow fire to be safe from anyone stopping it from burning buildings. You almost wonder if fire has donated money to the Conservative Party at some point in the recent past. 
So the choice for all those residents stuck through no fault of their own is to either go bankrupt or never be able to sell their home and constantly risk death by fire. Hey, I suppose with the latter, maybe the government will actually give a shit about you once you've gone and buy you a boat. Maybe that's always been the Conservatives' priority, I guess, which is why so many of their policies seem to be about letting people die from neglect while spending money on statues of those considerate enough to go before they had to pay for it. The government have also cut funding by 60% to UNICEF, which was used to help children around the world, but of course now the Prime Minister has too many of his own to support here, so spending has to be prioritised. In fact, the Foreign Office is cutting funding for global water, sanitation and hygiene bilateral projects by 80% as well as part of its reduction to foreign aid. And I can only assume it's because they've realised the UK is now so undesirable, the only way to persuade people to come here is by forcing them to in order to be able to hydrate. At which point the Home Office will accuse them of stealing water and send them straight back again. There was a rumour that the government were thinking of sending some money to another country by repaying a £400 million debt to Iran in order to finally secure the release of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe. Foreign Secretary and deep vein thrombosis as a person, Dominic Raab, said Iran's treatment of Nazanin amounts to torture and he's checked with the Home Office who said it's just like how they treat asylum seekers in the UK, so I guess it must be true. The talks are to repay the £400 million debt, which is for failing to send tanks that Iran bought from us in the 1970s, because it seems so much of the money that Britain owes places is due to a destructive bulk not managing to deliver. But the government say that none of those talks are related to Nazanin's detention, which is a separate issue and it's inappropriate to link them. Well, clearly, as one is about weapons, so thought to be worth time and energy, and the other is about a life of a woman and her family, which has been proved by the Prime Minister in his personal life and when he caused Nazanin's arrest, clearly isn't as important. Only one Conservative MP has said that Johnson should resign if he's breached ministerial code, and that's the leader of the Scottish Conservatives and victim of cruel photoshopping to make his face look too small for his head, Douglas Ross. A man who's had quite the week in the lead-up to the Scottish elections, starting with him showing off a dance routine to Atomic Kitten, a band that sung Whole Again, an entire song about where Ross talks from. Even in their latter stages, Atomic Kitten had almost as many members as the Scottish Conservatives. And then he took part in the Scottish leaders' debate where he refused to say if Scotland's being part of the Union was a voluntary choice. Well, if it's not, then Scotland's being held hostage and someone should really let Dominic Raab know and he might do absolutely nothing about it. And then Ross went against the grain of many Conservative MPs and said that Boris Johnson should resign if he's breached the ministerial code as people expected the highest standards of those in the highest office in the land, which shows you that he doesn't think much of the Scottish Parliament his party's running for or he'd stand all his candidates down. It does at least fit with when Ross said that SNP leader and Minecraft character Nicola Sturgeon should resign if she'd broken the ministerial code, so I applaud him for having some consistency even if the rest of the time he appears completely vapid. But all of the other Conservative lackeys that were shoved onto the politics programmes unsurprisingly disagreed with Ross. When asked if Johnson should resign if he'd broken the code, stupid peanut James Cleverly said it wasn't as straightforward as that, which isn't much of a useful answer for a man who'd say the same about eating with a spoon or trying not to hit his own face. According to Cleverly, the ministerial code is a guide for the Prime Minister but doesn't actually apply to him, a bit like the moral code or the instructions on a pack of condoms. The official line is that the Prime Minister is not using Tory funds to decorate the number 10 flat. The main bit there is not using, which means at the moment, but no one really wants to say if he previously used Tory funds or any donor money before then paying it back. It's important to know, because anyone that had access to the Prime Minister like that may have dictated policies as a result, and that could now be any one of the 15,000 people that was sent his phone number on the bottom of a press release 15 years ago that has been up on the internet ever since. Imagine how annoyed lobbyists must be that they had to spend all that time networking with twats when they could have just googled and then texted Johnson a picture of some tits and no doubt got several contracts back. 
Downing Street refused to comment on whether this was a major security risk, particularly as Johnson will have evaded some aspects of that by never attending Cobra meetings and therefore not actually knowing that much useful information in the first place. The Prime Minister, a man who's made his phone number more readily available than any of his various exes have done when angrily scrawling it on a toilet cubicle wall, will judge for himself if he has broken the ministerial code. Well, that's alright then. I'm sure he'll say he definitely did and come out with his hands in the air just asking to be replaced. He definitely seems like that sort of guy, a man of the people, who just honestly owns up to mistakes like that. You are your own worst critic, as they say, and when the Conservatives have most of the media under their control, that is probably true, even in Johnson's case of hefty narcissism. A BBC News piece by Salacious B. Crumb tribute act Laura Kunzberg wrote a long piece about the Prime Minister's relationship with the truth where she managed to ignore every time he definitely, definitely lied. A lot of people criticised the piece, but in being able to see that the story is definitely Johnson is a big fat liar and still fills several pages of fluff about absolutely nothing, that is a real expert guide to professional copywriting and I'm sure she'll go far working for a catalogue or website that gives holistic health advice. Despite all the money spent on decorating, Johnson can't seem to cover up the story about the number 10 flat. And it's being blamed for the Conservatives very slightly dropping in popularity in the polls before this week's election. It is just a minor drop in the polls, you understand, but it has had an effect. Because while 150,000 people being unnecessarily dead from Covid, child poverty rising or making people stuck in flammable buildings pay for that privilege is all totally reasonable behaviour for most voters, spending a lot of money on wallpaper that looks like a failed optical illusion is definitely the last straw. If only the issue with Grenfell Tower hadn't been cladding, but a garish fluorescent paint job, and then thousands might have chosen differently in the 2017 election that followed. The Labour Party have called for a Commons inquiry criticising the Prime Minister for marking his own homework, in which I'm certain they didn't intentionally get the double meaning of homework. I bet they didn't. I mean, they'll say they did now, but they definitely didn't at the time. They definitely didn't realise it had double meaning. Almost certainly. Labour leader and Panasonic laundroid Keir Starmer had a photo up in the wallpaper section of John Lewis which must have made a nice change for a man who usually gets his inspiration watching paint dry. The Conservatives accused him of playing politics which is always a stupid accusation against a politician who does politics making a political point no matter how weak. Maybe they're just sad because they prefer people who cheat at politics. Will this story be the Prime Minister's downfall? It's very hard to say, and I know many would be upset that it's just a dodgy flat refurb rather than all the other awful shit that he's done that gets him caught. But actually, I think it'd be super appropriate if it was, because yet again, Johnson's used someone else's money to cover up things with unnecessary flourish, masking that he's done a terrible job replacing something that didn't really need to change in the first place. In other news, DUP leader and woman made of coat hangers Arlene Foster has stepped down from her role and is also leaving the party after members signed a vote of no confidence in her. I'm surprised they forced her out before her term was up, as the DUP have always been adamantly against that. Still, being unhappy with Arlene Foster as leader means that for once the DUP were in line with public opinion, though I'm certain they'll vote to replace her with a copy of the Old Testament and a loud hailer. The current forerunner for the leadership job is Edwin Poots, holder of a very hilarious name and the appearance of Stretch Armstrong's distant uncle, while Paul Given, a man who looks like he's been caught in the headlights scampering across the road, would become first minister. Poots and Given are creationists and dismiss the theory of evolution, and looking at them you can absolutely see why. They both also have very extreme homophobia views, but on the plus side, those two being leader and first minister may well directly cause a more progressive Northern Ireland, not least as they make sure no one ever votes DUP ever again. The EU ratified the Brexit train cooperation agreement which Boris Johnson said was the final step in a long journey, making it sound very much like the country has now died. It has been signalled as a new chapter in friendly relations after four years of division, which is exactly the sort of thing you say at the end of a relationship before deleting your ex's number from your phone and never seeing them ever again. 
The government said the agreement being ratified meant we could take back control of our money, you know, so Johnson can spend it on his flat and a boat. Our borders, which Covid currently has control over, our laws, which don't seem to apply to those in charge, and our waters, which we've successfully done by the government failing to secure a fishing deal quota with Norway, meaning that much of the UK's fishing industry will now get battered. Really, the side of that bus should have just read, there is no cod. Health Secretary and Dad Who's So Cringy Embarrasses Other People's Kids Too, Matt Hancock, tweeted a picture of him getting his first vaccination jab from Deputy Chief Medical Officer and yes, every time, massive baby, Jonathan Van Tam. Of course it had to be Van Tam that did it, as any other medical staff would have struggled not to jab it in Hancock's eye or at least do a run-up. The Foreign Secretary has imposed sanctions on 22 people accused of corruption because it seems that if the government haven't hurt comedians enough over the past year, they now also have to make jokes too easy to bother doing. England now has the lowest Covid cases since last September, which is good as we all remember after that things just got better. Restrictions have lifted across Wales and will do so even more in England from the 17th of May, with there being no limit on funeral mourners after then. I'm not sure if that's actually policy or just Boris Johnson giving us an indication of how things might go. Covid stopped being the biggest cause of death in the UK a couple of weeks ago and now everyone's just dying of other things that are being neglected instead. It's really sad to know that we could have taken Covid down a notch ages ago with just a few more killing sprees or by releasing some hungry tigers. According to Dominic Raab, who is as aware of health issues as a sausage is of foreign diplomacy, or sorry, as Dominic Raab is of foreign diplomacy, he said the UK was in a good position to get life back to as close as normal as possible by June the 21st, which would only be true if we had an opportunity to get rid of the government on June the 20th. There is a chance the one metre social distancing rule will have been scrapped by that date though, meaning that for millions of people nothing will have changed as they've ignored it since last May anyway. Some foreign travel may also be opening up in a week and a bit's time, but the government aren't saying to where, and if I was you, I'd just keep an eye out for where they owe debts to and keep clear of those places. And lastly, former Downing Street press secretary and man whose chin withers every time he lies, which is why it's currently aligned with his neck, Alistair Campbell, is to take over as host on Good Morning Britain after the departure of performative turkey wattle Piers Morgan. I do hope the producers don't feel too disappointed when it turns out that despite Campbell promising he could, he's unable to get camera ready within 45 minutes. Hey, 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 hey! How are you all, Parpol Brods? Uh, excited about this week, bookended by a windy, windy bank holiday and an election. Um, I'm debating exactly how to do all of my votes and what type of pen I should take with me. Isn't it amazing that the used pens conspiracy a few years back, I don't know if you remember that, it was conjured up by paranoid UKIP voters, uh, where they said that people rub out your pencil marks and put it somewhere else so you have to use pens. That has now become policy due to COVID. Something that the same voters probably won't appreciate because they like to think COVID is a conspiracy too, and thus it's the never-winning cycle of delusion. Still, uh, I might borrow one of my daughter's sparkly pens or a big fat felt tip just so I can do that cross real, real nice. Uh, I've only got the Merrill and London Assembly ones in my area, so none of the local government ones that many of you do. But I'm still excited to go to our local library and stand near people who'll probably vote badly because my area is full of fucking idiots. Still, I guess anyone who wants to vote for Lawrence Fox or someone like that probably won't be allowed in due to a lack of masks. So I guess that should filter itself out. I haven't really covered those elections enough on the show. Um, I know it's because there's loads of them and they're all different wherever you are. I'm probably going to talk about them more after they've happened. But look, just make sure you go out and vote for uh, pretty much anyone except the Conservatives. Um, I know it's probably hard if you're in a small area where everyone is terrified of the outside. But every single vote that says actually kindness is radical um, is one towards things being less shit. So do go out with your own fancy pens or pencils and do that. Anyone, anyone but them. Absolutely anyone. 
Um, I appreciate you may be hearing this podcast after the results have come out, in which case, enjoy my ignorance of the Conservatives massively increasing their parliamentary majority by one in Hartlepool and their overwhelming local election wins, because I think, short of them saying they enjoyed the line of duty final, um, they can't really do anything wrong, can they? I'm really wondering what it is that will ever cut through to the public if it's not the myriad of awful things that already put many classic villains to shame. I'm starting to wonder if we're just in a weird timeline where it'll only be Johnson suddenly, like, out of the blue doing something really kind that might turn people off him. Not that that's likely to happen, but I suppose it might be worth someone spiking his poorly made cups of tea with MDMA. Just hoping for the best. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll really deter the horrid public and big thanks this week to christine and emma for donating to the Kofi and ovs you can do that too if you fancy chucking me the price of a pint coffee or reasonably unfancy cake at kofi.com forward slash parpol bro join the patreon.com forward slash parpol bro or via the acast supporter button or give the show a review on apple podcasts and all of those sorts of places or just tell people you like it and tell them they might like it and then snatch their phone and download it and play every single episode from their phone and tell them to stop crying or you'll break their tv okay it's a bit much and you're also not allowed that near them until june 21st so hold off a little bit Big apologies for last week's show, um, where apparently I was told, I haven't actually listened back to it, I probably should check, uh, just in case I didn't, but apparently I mistakenly said Preston was in the northeast when it's not. It's definitely in the northwest, and I know that. I've been there, I've done shows there, I've driven to Lancashire, I've seen it on a map, I know where it is, and I read that it was in northwest loads even before saying it, so I promise it wasn't ignorance, but a sheer idiot slip of the tongue, because I hadn't had enough sleep. And I'm not sure how it happened, but it probably will happen again, because I am hilariously unprofessional, and you love it. You bloody love it. Uh, also, this week, I want to give um, a very special shout out to Katie Coxall, who I thank at the end of every single one of these podcasts, as she did all the artwork for them. Um, and she's entirely responsible for that drawing of my bearded face. You know, the little one that pops up on your pod apps all of the time. Um, Katie is having a hell of shit time at the moment and is currently in a hospice receiving treatment for some absolute bastard cancer. Um, though I am also reassured by her that she's getting egg chips and mushy peas served under a cloche. So, you know, not all bad. Um... But yeah, not very good. And uh, I should have plugged this years ago, really. Uh, but on Redbubble, there are some of Katie's brilliant, brilliant designs, including the Don't Vote Tory t-shirts that you now won't be able to get before Thursday, because uh, I should have thought about this weeks ago. But why not help Katie out and order them and then wear them constantly till the election after that? Um, I'll pop links to those and her website in the pod blurb, so please do grab one. Also, not just to help Katie, but they're bloody excellent as well. Oh, and lastly, um, and just apropos of nothing really, but Nomadland is brilliant. Uh, I watched it on Friday. It, it won all the Oscars and it really does deserve them. Francis McDormand is absolutely um, incredible but also like just not only is it beautiful and very moving but it's, it's quite a comment on um, sort of poverty in America too and uh, and people that have forgotten as industry dies um, it's really bloody good go go see it do that go see it right on this week's show I had a chat with Dr Moga Kamal Yani at the People's Vaccine Campaign about how vaccine nationalism is yet another form of shit nationalism is there anything that's good nationalism uh no and there's a bit in the middle about how cod does exist and it's norwegian the thing with a global pandemic is that as its name suggests it's a pandemic that's all over the world that's the global bit that's the global bit that's right there at the beginning of the name covid19 has done more traveling than anyone else was allowed to in the last year even reaching antarctica in december like it had some sort of world trip bucket list and wouldn't stop till it done it all 
There are two ways that you can treat something that affects everyone everywhere. And the first, most sensible way, would be for all countries to work together, sharing knowledge, science and strategies in order to halt the virus in its airborne tracks before announcing the planet officially open again to all except alien invaders. And everyone unites hand in hand because that would be allowed now. Or there's the second way, which is every country for themselves, hoarding vaccines like it might somehow mean they have global dominance as the last one standing full of virus invincibility because they haven't paid any attention to our mutations, the global economy or travel work and obviously haven't seen enough horror films to learn that if you don't do the job properly, the enemy defo comes back long after you think they're dead. As you can guess, because, well, it's 2021, Britain, along with many of the other big bully countries, have opted for number two. Yes, it is the number two option, not just because it's second. While on the one hand, over half the British population have now been jabbed at least once, leading to events such as daytime raves with lateral flow tests being allowed, which must have felt weird having security happily shove things up partygoers' noses when they usually frown on that sort of thing. On the other hand, across the world, India is hitting record death tolls every day as a shortage of vaccines means there just isn't enough to go round. And Brazil, with the second highest death toll in the world, is now asking for other countries' spare vaccines to be sent to them. But, but, but didn't vaccine deployment minister and rejected Guess Who character Nadim Zawahi say back in March that the 10 million doses of vaccine bought from India wouldn't impact poor nations as they were intended for Britain? Yes, and he was partly right in that they were intended for Britain as Britain did buy them. But he was mostly wrong because it's exactly the wealthy countries hoarding vaccines like that that is affecting poor nations. Many governments be grabbing almost double the supply they need and Big Pharma don't want to scrap the patents that would allow other countries to develop their own vaccines because what's the point in saving lives if you can't make money off it? It's very easy to be short-sighted if your vision is constantly blurred by big dollar signs cha-chinging right in front of them. As always, yes, we are the bad guys, and now we have vaccine nationalism for a global pandemic. You know, like hastily taking all the food in your village to save yourself from a nationwide famine, failing to realise that if you haven't helped other people, what's stopping them from eating you? This week I spoke to Dr Moga Kamal Yani, who's a consultant in global health policy and has worked with many NGOs all over the world, but is currently working with the People's Vaccine Alliance in their campaign for enough COVID-19 vaccines to be available all over the world, free of charge and free of patents. While the World Health Organization's own COVAX problem is failing to deliver and isn't being transparent enough about the deals it's doing, the People's Vaccine Alliance is made up of many organisations and groups who are demanding a system that works and asking governments to participate. I asked Moga all about why there aren't enough vaccines to go round, if just providing the recipes for vaccines is enough, and just how, if at all, any of us can help. Here's Moga. Hi, Moga. Thank you for uh, joining me today. And um, I think the first question is, you know, we've had two news stories out as we're speaking today on uh, Friday, 30th of April, that the UK has done more second dose vaccines than anywhere else. While at the same time, India is running out of vaccines and doesn't have enough for people. And I wondered, is this issue a result of a lack of vaccines or is it that the wealthier countries are hoarding vaccines or is it both? Um, It's definitely both. There is an inadequate production of vaccines. Basically, we, we, we need billions of doses to vaccinate the billions of people who inhabit this planet. Um, but there isn't that uh, amount or, or any, anywhere near that um, has been produced. And what has been produced has been hoarded by rich countries, including the UK. So, so basically, it is like... Um, if you have a small pizza or a small pie, um, for a lot of people, so you get the, the big kind of uh, strong people who kind of grab the biggest possible share of the pie for themselves and leave the crumbs to the others. And that's exactly what's happening. 
So the pie itself is small and it's been kind of grabbed by, by rich countries uh, leaving very little to others. The irony with because India is that India has the biggest um, vaccine producer in the world, um, but it's, uh, it's still, it's not enough. Definitely. And is that because didn't India sell a lot of its vaccines elsewhere as well? Well, the, the thing is, um, it's an AstraZeneca vaccine, basically. AstraZeneca did this agreement, this contract with uh, an Indian company called Serum. So um, it, the idea was it will, Serum will provide one billion doses a year for all developing countries, basically, including India. So... What happened is all companies have been talking about they're going to produce billions and trillions. And of course, that's in reality that didn't happen with any company, you know, companies from here or, or from India or from anywhere. But the, the other thing is that um, uh, India needs needs more vaccines. Uh, and, and also, even as the, the problem was... Um, COVID was increasing on the rise in India um, and the company had commitment to developing countries, yet in their secret agreement with AstraZeneca, clearly we discovered that, uh, that AstraZeneca had in the agreement that the AstraZeneca has a priority in terms of the doses that serum produces, so that when AstraZeneca couldn't fulfill its commitment to the NHS here, to the UK here, um, they actually got 5 million doses from India to come to the UK, and 5 millions are supposed to be uh, on their way. I think they're delayed because of the situation. So, you know, in the middle of a huge need in India, in the middle of a huge need in Africa, and in other developing countries, still the UK gets gets a priority because of all these secret agreements. And one agreement with one company in India is just not enough. No, and, and I was just going to say, because obviously we know about India right now because it's in the news, but as you mentioned, Africa, many other countries, how many countries at the moment are being denied vaccines uh, because, because of this? Well, most developing countries, basically. Because developing countries rely mainly on this global mechanism to, called COVAX, and COVAX now cannot be, has no vaccine to to give to um, um, to any country for this month or next month. So you know, not not in April, not in May, because there's no production in India. You just can't provide. You can't rely on one company or even two companies for that matter. You just can't rely on that to produce all the millions of doses that we need. So there is a huge shortage. You know, we talked about that last year. It was very clear that if, if, if the producing companies, the pharmaceutical companies, hold the monopoly on technology and it's in their hands to decide who they license to produce their, their vaccine and who they don't, then we won't have enough. It was quite clear. And, it, and yet, so it surprises me that, that now we're talking about global shortage. Well, hello. Or Europe talking about they haven't got enough vaccines. Well, yeah. What, what's, what's bizarre about that? We all knew that. It's the UK and the US particularly. I mean, all rich countries, including the EU, made this agreement with pharmaceutical companies for um, basically for more doses than needed. 
we, we would have, if we buy all the doses, or if we get rather all the doses that the UK uh, had agreed with the companies uh, to buy, we, we can vaccinate British people twice. Wow. So we, we're overbuying. Oh, yeah. All, all these rich countries are overbuying, yes. And of course, if it's, if it, you know, we're leaving fundamental, I mean, governments really leaving fundamental decisions in the hands of pharmaceutical companies. So the companies decide how many doses they can produce, when, and who to, who to give to, you know, how to allocate it. Do they give Europe or do they give UK or do they give um, US or, or, and then at the end, of course, they give from developing countries. So, so what happens is COVAX is totally relying on AstraZeneca vaccines produced by India or produced in India. Is, is, this, is this an example of, uh, you know, uh, is this vaccine nationalism that we're, we're seeing right now? And I, I just wonder as well, because, uh, you know, obviously we're going through a major pandemic right now, but has this been the case in the past? Has it always been, you know, this hoarding of, uh, of, of vaccines and, and medicines in this way uh, that we're just seeing it kind of exacerbated now because it's on a, such a, an urgent scale? Well, yeah, when um, H1N1, this uh, flu uh, virus, uh, uh, started um, a few years ago, um, and then there was a vaccine and rich countries just emptied the market, just literally emptied the market. It, the, the only thing that happened was that the virus was merciful and didn't, um, you know, didn't do what COVID is doing. So, so that's why developing countries didn't suffer. But actually, if there was, uh, if the virus was strong or just spread fast like this one, we would have had the same problem. And, and actually what I heard um, from some experts now, they're saying, you know, talk about whatever you want, you know, about uh, global public good and about this. They said, if there is another um, pandemic next year, exactly the same thing will happen. Rich countries will wow. fight to get the, the biggest uh, number of vaccines for their people and just ignore the rest. The thing is, it is very, very short-sighted. I mean, the, we're arguing about fair distribution of vaccine, not just as a moral thing. Actually, it's from a, a public health uh, uh, basis. And, you know, we've got our prime minister who always say, you know, we rely on the science, we rely on the science. What is the science he relies on? The science says that the virus doesn't need a visa to enter the country. The science says that if you leave the, the virus without vaccines, um, you know, it will mutate. And if it mutates, it can mutate to another um, like version of the virus where it either spreads faster or it causes severe illnesses and death or it makes the vaccines less effective or even ineffective, or the three together. And we have examples of that, the variant in South Africa, from South Africa. The variant from the UK spread fast, and that's what's spreading in, in Europe now. It's a UK variant. That's a fast spreader. The variant from South Africa is um, uh, less, you know, makes the vaccines less effective. So AstraZeneca vaccines is hardly effective in South Africa, though they're not using it. You know, they ordered some some doses from India and then they had to uh, give it to other countries because they just can't. It's useless for them. So it's a, yeah, so it's a real danger. So we can be vaccinated, but if there is another variant somewhere that comes here and the Indian variant, the current Indian variant is discovered in the UK now. 
So, you know, you're not going to put a antivirus kind of, I don't know, detectors or something at, at every port and airport and every shipping and, you know. Yeah, it's incredibly short. So, I mean, it, it ruins the purpose of having the vaccines in the first place if it's then going to continue to spread around the world and come back to us. Yeah. Ten, tenfold, uh, it, it makes it seem like the vaccine, whole vaccine initiative is more for image than, than to actually defeat the virus. Yeah, but that, that is and, the case. With, I mean, even, you know, a few years ago, I remember when we were involved with uh, the campaign for making um, HIV medicines available in developing countries. It, it was the same thing. The medicines were in the north. They were very expensive because it, the monopoly was left to pharmaceutical companies and people were dying like flies in Africa. And, and, and it was like, well, you know, they're expensive. So like, you know, just to accept what pharma says, that the cost of making medicines is expensive. So you have to sell the medicine at $10,000 um, per person per year. And well, if people die in Africa, well, tough luck. I mean, it's really, it, it's just so amazing, incredible. Millions of people died in Africa, particularly in Africa, but elsewhere because of lack of medicines. And it was like, you know, it didn't hit anybody um, until the big campaign from people living with HIV, it was civil society, and then media took, took um, you know, played a role as well in, and all the campaigns and demonstrations and whatever that, um, and, and it took a company from India who dis, which decided to make the, make the medicines and at a, at a very low cost, you know, $1 a day, basically, um, that it became possible for donors to buy the, to, you know, to invest in programs to buy the medicine for poor countries and for countries to buy the medicine. But before, the, you know, if we didn't campaign, people would just continue dying from, from HIV. You know, it, it's just really crazy. And that's what's happening now. We're, we're, we're a global movement now to make country uh, to make companies and rich countries understand that this is damaging um, for public health here in our countries but all well in, in, in rich countries but also for the economy you can't you can't open the global economy and come back to normal when when most of the world is suffering no no of course not of course not it's so callous isn't it to just only, only think about your own country in that, in that way as well. And I, I wanted, you know, with, with the people's vaccine, um, I want to talk to you very specifically about the campaign in a minute. But I, the overall, is the solution providing the recipe for the vaccines? I know that in in one of the Canadian companies was talking about that. But is is that enough to give the recipe to other countries? How do they then manufacture it? What's what's the way in which you you know we can enable other countries to adequately deal with the vaccine shortage? Okay, so we need to maximize the global capacity of production. So there are some companies who are very sophisticated. There are ones that are a little bit less sophisticated. You know, there's not just one one standard of, of, of vaccines, uh, vaccine producer. And that's the case actually here. It's not just in developing countries. So what we need, we need three things, combination of three things. One thing is to share the technology, what you call the know-how. So we need to share that technology with, with these manufacturers who, who are capable of producing the vaccine um, in, in, in short time and, you know, quality vaccines. The second thing that is needed is to waive intellectual property rights. So companies can produce a vaccine once they know the technology without worrying about somebody will take them to court tomorrow 
because they would say you infringed on my uh, patent right or, or trade secrets right on this or that or the other. So that's the second thing. The third thing is you need money because you need to uh, uh, upgrade or modify the production line. And just on that one, um, uh, the Merck company, which is a big vaccine producer, so it's a, it's a big company. It is a vaccine producer already, not COVID, but, but in general. Uh, so Merck decided or, or wanted to do or agreed with Johnson & Johnson to produce the vaccine that's, or, um, that Johnson & Johnson has. In order to do that, the U.S. government paid $150 million for Merck to upgrade or modify or train its people or whatever they need to do in order to produce these vaccines. So with that, that money is needed. But the money cannot work without the technology transfer and waiving intellectual property rights. These are absolutely critical. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. And we'll be back with Moga in a minute, but first... Last week, the European Parliament ratified the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. What that means isn't that they put loads of rats in it. No, they were already there, mainly on the British negotiation team. No, what it means is that they voted through the deal that was agreed in December, and now Brexit has got done done! Well, some of it has. Like, a little bit of it. The Trade and Cooperation Agreement just covers the tariff-free and quota-free trade of all goods, but not the trade of services, which is mostly what we have in the UK, having spent the majority of years since Thatcher's government declining to make things because she broke all that and then everyone since stomped on the remains. But it's still about a chunk of what we send to the EU, including food and drink, though probably not much fish anymore, but we'll get to that in a minute. There's plenty more, um, no. Wait, anyway. Uh, Johnson said the ratifying of the agreement was a final step in a long journey. But if he believes that, then either he's keeled over and isn't bothering with the rest, or his line of vision is so narrow that he can't see all the miles ahead. 
Sure, the agreement is ratified, but now it's got to be implemented by a partnership council between the EU and UK, assisted by 19 specialist committees, four working groups and some others making 32 bodies altogether. I don't know what the other ones are. Don't ask me. I've looked it up. No one seems to want to say, so I'm guessing it's just a few people in a pub, a group of children in reception and some dogs in hats. Basically, there's loads more negotiations to go about all the little details that are in the agreement and all the different goods that are going to be traded. And at the moment, the UK has become a third country. The EU have definitely got a better deal of all this, and we haven't really got all that much in return, despite all the bravado of Flempal David Frost. And really, the UK can either keep to the EU single market rules for tariff-free trade, or deviate and find itself with a whole ton of restrictions and a whole load of charges. Freedom! So yeah, Brexit still not got done done. The TCA, as all the cool kids call it, but actually don't because they don't really know what it is, also had a binding dispute mechanism that means should either the EU or the UK, but let's face it, the UK, try any funny business, then as European Commission President and upside-down volivant Ursula von der Leyen said, they would use those teeth if necessary. I'm hoping that doesn't mean they'll eat us. Not least as I'm not sure the export of people as food is covered in the agreement and there'll be a lot of paperwork involved. Mm, that's the second joke about eating people in today's podcast. It'll probably should be worried about that uh, the northern ireland protocol means everything is different for northern ireland for now until all of that is reviewed which could then affect everything else but for now things may get slightly easier for anyone who wants to sell pigs to luxembourg which i assume is a thing again i didn't look it up i just saw a headline about a pig farmer saying they had too many pigs because of brexit and so chances are high now they'll sell some to luxembourg or failing that to david cameron now he's got a break between lobbying None of what the TCA delivers has been measured against what was promised with Brexit, as that will come once Covid is done and normalist trade sort of starts again. If it can start, we don't really know. Trade of services continue to be discussed and finalised in the Memorandum of Understanding, which I'm pretty sure is a Harry Potter book. So that's that sort of, but not really. But the big issue now is that while the UK can get all its own trade negotiations wherever else in order, it hasn't really bothered. Uh, you might remember that a really big selling point of Brexit was getting control of our waters, like an advert for incontinence pads. And the Trade and Cooperation Agreement sort of does that with the EU, gradually decreasing its fishing quota in UK waters by 25% over the next five years. So slowly, there's like a couple of fish a year. But while the one hand giveth, the other hand slaps the fishing industry in the face with a big cod, because the government failed to secure a deal with Norway for fishing in the subarctic seas, meaning the UK fleets won't have any access to those icy ponds, and that means no fishing for cod for the rest of the year at least, which could put up the price of fish and chips. Yes, not only is that devastating for all of us Brits who only eat fish and chips for three meals a day every single day, because otherwise, what is patriotism? But it's worse for a big hull-based fishing trawler that usually catches 10% of fish sold in fish and chip shops and is now grounded till 2022, meaning a lack of income and many, many potential job losses, which is just shit. Thanks to a continuity agreement the UK signed with Norway and Iceland back in December and boasted about it, Norway will be able to import cod to the UK tariff-free, while we have to go fish. Or rather not. What it also shows is that the idea that the trade and cooperation agreement might help businesses plan for the future is codswallop, especially if no one has any idea what trade agreements the government will manage to negotiate with other countries. There's a trade deal with Australia that's due to be signed soon, where Australia's main interest is increasing food exports to the UK. Will that be good for us, or will that affect the farming industry? We have no idea, as it's all down to wobbly, nodding head toy Liz Truss and wherever she wants a photo opportunity. Same with the US deal and all the others that they have lined up. Where was it again? The Faroe Islands? Some asteroid that only comes near the Earth every 400 years? Something like that. As the fishing industry have abruptly realised this week, Brexit has indeed allowed us to take back control. But that's only because so much has been given away, no one will be all that keen on having what we've got left, and they'll leave it to us to ruin it instead. And now, back to Moga. 
So is that up to governments to put in policies that, that remove those or is it up to the pharmaceutical companies themselves to decide it's it's not important? Who Who is it that needs to be persuaded to to make that change? Okay, so on on technology, on sharing technology, the, the World Health Organization, the WHO, um, uh, created something called um, the COVID-19 Technology Access Pool. The idea of this pool, it's like, it works like a one-stop shop. So the company that has the technology and the intellectual property, will they put their technology and intellectual to this pool. The pool, you know, access just so, as I said, one-stop one shop, license that the, the intellectual property and share the technology with all the companies that can uh, can produce the medicine and uh, the, the vaccine sorry uh, can produce the vaccine and therefore you have as many as possible and who can work on the quality with you know ensuring that there's the, the quality of the products is, is uh, basically is, is a good quality now Pharmaceutical companies actually rubbished this mechanism. Rich countries, there's 40 countries, mostly from developing countries who support this mechanism, but rich countries just either ignore it or just don't, don't mention it, or they, they, they're not interested, basically. Then you get um, people like Bill Gates. He said the other day, he said, there's no need for sharing technology. He just wanted wow. people to be under the mercy of pharmaceutical companies and himself because he he is part of any, you know, you will find Gates' name in any deal between pharmaceutical companies and somebody else. So so it's kind of like, you know, and it's, these are all secret deals. They're not negotiated on behalf of public health. They're negotiated as commercial deals, really. So anyway, so so you've got these people who are hugely influential. You know, so it COVAX, the global mechanism, which is has you know um, influence from Gates as well. They also say, well, it's not no intellectual property is not an issue for vaccines, and therefore they rubbish the the the, the pool. And the pool is not just about intellectual property; it's about technology. So 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 that that's a big problem in the hands of countries to say, you know, if it's the UK. Or the U.S. said we support the pool, then that would give input, you know, would give a strong message to pharmaceutical companies about the pool. So that's one thing. On the waiver, this is a government business because the waiver, the, the waiving intellectual property rights, including patents, trade secrets, copyright, that are relevant. Not all the the, the, the rights but all the, those who, which are relevant to COVID technologies, so like uh, relevant to masks, relevant to, relevant to uh, vaccines, to medicines, um, just waiving them temporarily until the whole world is vaccinated. So it's a temporary waiver. And yet, so that happens, you know, the ability to waive it is by countries, by government saying, yes, I accept the, the waiving at the World Trade Organization. So what's happening? There's a hundred countries supporting the waiver, and it's a, a, a basically a bunch of countries, mostly rich countries. So like the G7, so like the US, the UK, the, the the European, the Canadians, they are against against the waiver. So basically, these rich countries are holding the rest of the world at ransom to stay at to be at the mercy of what pharmaceutical companies decide in terms of production. 
Which is just, I mean, it's just horrific, isn't it? Because I, I know sort of just after the the Second World War, I think it was the US that asked people, uh, sort of enabled antibiotics to be passed around. There's obviously no incentive for them to do the same again. I mean, does it look like any of them might budge? Is there any indication that this may change? Or do you think we're going to have to wait for it all to flare up again around the world before... Well, I don't, I don't you know. know. I mean, it's, the US says that they are thinking about it, which, I mean, the US never said that about anything to do with intellectual property. You know, it's 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 wholly more, you know, it's holier than any religious book, basically, the TRIPS agreement, this intellectual property uh, agreement at the World Trade Organization. Um, so, but they said they're thinking, so we take that as a positive sign, but, but nothing happened yet, you know, that thinking didn't produce anything. For the UK, the UK is awful. The situation, of the position of the UK are um, on, on the way, but it's absolutely dreadful. They don't, they oppose it, and what they do is they have this wonderful te- te- technique of um, tactics of um, stalling, basically. So they keep asking questions. So India and South Africa, the two countries that put put the waiver proposal forwards, have produced 49 pages of answering questions from all these rich countries, including the UK. They, you know, and they keep answer, asking the same question, but kind of in a different format. But it's the same question that South Africa and India, who have the patience of the world, I think to answer the same question again and again and again. So basically to to keep delaying and delaying and delaying. And it's like, what it seems like is that these rich countries really want to protect, to maintain rather, to maintain the, the, the developing countries' markets for the benefits of pharmaceutical companies. Because if if we have like you know few Indian companies, maybe Indonesian, Brazilian, or maybe somebody somewhere in South Africa or something, produce a vaccine that will go all over the world, then that will cut on the uh, the market for the the companies that we have here, and and therefore um, cut on their profit. And of course, they see this uh, pandemic as a, a big as a chance, as an opportunity, one to improve their um, horrible image, because pharma, particularly in the U.S., since the opioid um, uh, saga, basically they have a bad image in the U.S. So they see it quite clearly, and they said that they, invest, they told the investors that that they see it as an opportunity to improve their image, like they the savior wow. of the world. You know, they produce the vaccines that are going to save us, so they say they're the savior of the world, which is rubbish because the vaccine research has been done in universities and and funded by 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 the public, a lot of it funded by the public money. So, um, so that's the first thing. And second thing, as a profit-making mechanism, even the companies that are selling at no profit for this time in, in developing countries, you know, they're hoping for profit uh, further on. So it's, um, you know, oh. so they don't want to, to, to lose markets in, in developing countries. So, you know, if few people die in the middle, well, tough luck. That's so awful. And then I guess the UK sends all those vaccines back to India and pretends it's a saviour for helping them out when it's denying they've denied it them in the first place. Yeah, exactly. No, I, no the UK position is absolutely awful. This thing about UK hmm. being global, 
you know. <laughs> so we're cutting aid to poor people. That's what we're doing in the UK, cutting aid to, do, mm. to poor people, you know, depriving these people from vaccines or from the opportunity to have vaccines like what we have here. And then we talk about how wonderful Britain is in the global, um, kind of among the global community. What? Uh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, that might sell, it might sell here, but it doesn't, I can tell you, it doesn't sell in developing countries. They know exactly what the UK is doing. And we're not buying, uh, you know, I wouldn't dare say that, oh, the UK is doing how, how wonderful thing to my colleagues or my family or my friends out there because they would say they would say what what about this and this and this so people know what the uk is doing unless the uk change its position change its policies and behave like a global player you know we're not yeah. I mean, it's not just in inhumane in terms of making other people suffer. It's also completely stupid in terms of future yeah. relationships and future image yeah. for the country. Wow, ah, awful. I, I, what I wanted to ask, obviously, you know, you're you're part of the People's Vaccine Campaign, and I suppose people that listen to this podcast will think this sounds like such a, a thing that's happening at such a, a, a high level with governments and big pharmaceutical countries. What can we actually do as just members of the public? to help the people's vaccine campaign are there things that we can do to try and change this uh, vaccine hoarding yeah join join the campaign basically you know so we 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 write letters to the um uh, to the prime minister we we talk to uh, members of the parliament talk to your member of parliament this is the first thing you could do just go to your member of the parliament and say what are you doing to get the our government to um help developing countries um um produce more va- more vaccines so they can get their vac- the, you know they can get their population vaccinated why don't you stop why you know talk to the government and ask them why don't they stop opposing the the, the, the waiver, um, the the waiver on intellectual property? And that's the first thing. Just go to your MP and talk, and talk to them. The other thing is talk to your neighbor, talk to your friends, talk to your family. Make everybody aware of it, so that when we kind of like have a petition or a or a letter going or something, we get. People signing, you know, there was two million people who signed on one one uh, letter. I think when it went to Congress in the U.S. So we need right. the millions of people in the U.K. to 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 speak, to sign on le- letters, to talk to their MPs, to basically pressurize the government and say that's what we want. We do want other people to have the vaccine that we have here, to have this opportunity that we have here, because this is a, you know the fact that we have the vaccine is just. I happen to be in this country or I happen to be born in this country. You know, if you were born in India, you wouldn't have the vaccine. So it's not like on merit that I have the vaccine and my, my, my family doesn't have it over there or my friends don't have it over there. So, you know, and, and, and also to say, so say to people that it's, um, it's, it's self-defeating. We're not going to get out of this pandemic just by vaccinating ourselves, we have to vaccinate everybody else. If we're really to control this pandemic and return to some normality in life and, you know, and, and, and just get rid of it, we're not going to get rid of it just by vaccinating ourselves. So it's for our self-interest as well as the economic interest, as well as the moral imperative that will help other people. 
Brilliant. Well, thank you. Thank you uh, for, for joining me on the podcast. And um, one question that I just uh, ask every interview that we have on this show with the hope of furthering information, um, which is that apart from yourself and obviously the People's Vaccine Campaign, are there any other writers, journalists, websites that you just recommend listeners follow or check out about tackling vaccine nationalism, about the, the real news about this? Well, there's a, the People's Vaccine website is a useful place of information. I also have my own website and blog, where, and I write about these issues. Um, and it's called uh, Mohga KY, so that's M O H G A K Y at Access Two is Figure Two Healthcare One Word. Also, all the Access to Healthcare One Word dot net. Um, and that, that's my blog, and I uh, and I'm very active on Twitter. Um, all, also, uh, you might like to follow. Um, there is an online newspaper called Health Policy, which is based in Geneva, but it follows these things. It comes every day. You get a, like a, a, a like a newsletter every day from from these people. But if you want any information, just um, send me, drop me a message on my blog, and I will reply. Many thanks to Moga for that and agreeing to chat quite last minute when I was certain this might be a guest this episode. And big thanks to Sarah at the People's Vaccine for arranging it too. Um, you can find Moga on Twitter at uh, Moga, that's M-O-H-G-A, Kamal, K-A-M-A-L, Yani, Y-A-N-N-I. And obviously that link will be in the pod blurb too, so you don't have to listen to me painfully spelling it out. Uh, and also on her website at Access2, that's the number two, healthcare.net, which is also where you'll find Moga's blog. The People's Vaccine campaign can be found at peoplesvaccine.org, where you can also find their list of just how to take action and links to all their Twitter and Facebook too. Please, please join their campaign. Had some great suggestions for guests lately, so ta to all of you who've sent those in. Um, slightly different ask, yet exactly the same ask this week. Rather than specific guests, I have to say, like, is there anyone that you'd recommend? But actually, rather than that, I just want to know topics that I haven't talked to someone about on this show yet, or maybe I need to do an update on. What questions have you got about the politics that you'd like answered? let me know and I will get searching for someone to ask about it. You can, of course, let me know at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Yeah, I just plugged that one this week. How does that feel? Was that nice? Just having one? It's not the, the long bit, is it? We, you missed the unnecessarily long list of communication channels. Okay, just for you, you can get in touch at Paul Bobber on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me on partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or why not borrow obscene amounts of money to have your recommendation wallpapered across a public office in gold gilt only to find that instead of being impressed and enjoying your suggestions, I'll simply now also have disdain for your complete lack of taste in optioning to decorate your home like a dragon's been sick on it as well as everything else about you that I already didn't like. So as always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? And now, everyone, it's time to say goodbye to this week's episode of the Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Goodbye, musically deprived jingles. Goodbye, over-the-top descriptions of politicians. Goodbye, all the burps that I have to edit out from the recordings. There are so many. Goodbye, terrible pronunciations of things that I did look up and hear the correct pronunciations of and still got them wrong. Goodbye, vague and incomplete understandings of important issues. Goodbye, content that 100% relies on things being awful and would definitely collapse if we ever did eventually live in a fair and equal society. Goodbye, all the spare time I would have on a Monday if I only did work that was financially beneficial to me. Goodbye, asking you that if you enjoyed this, you can definitely donate money to the Kofi Patreon or ACAR supporter sites or maybe even review the show or tell people about it. Goodbye, listeners. Goodbye. Goodbye. Oh, actually, wait, sorry, I forgot some stuff. And it looks like it's raining, so maybe uh, wait a minute to stay. Yeah, don't go just yet.
<laughs> Thanks yeah, to Acast, The Last Skeptic, Cat Day and Katie Coxall. And this will be back next week when Boris Johnson asks for people to bung a bob to keep Bojo bonking and sets up a GoFundMe for some new pants because Lord Brownlow refuses to buy him some gold ones. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Norwegian Fisk and Fritz, the traditional British dish. Have them wrapped in that classic British paper, the Afton Poston, and have them smothered in dill and lime like you used to with your mar when you were a kid out hunting elk under the Aurora Borealis. Traditional British Norwegian Fisk and Fritz. Skål! Cheers! ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.